our series called The Cross. And in the summer, I felt this conviction that I myself had not heard a complete series on the cross. I've heard messages on the cross, of course, we all have. But I wanted to do something to unpack the centrality of the cross and to get it kind of back on the agenda. Now, I'm sure that many of you have not taken it off the agenda, but it felt to me like it was a really good idea to make it absolutely central again. Do you remember that very first message I did at the beginning of September where I talked about when you were a kid and you had to try and get to the, the center of the roundabouts and your mates were spinning it really hard and you'd run onto the roundabout and you try and get to the middle and it would pull you there you know it's hard to pull yourself to the center well I think that's a bit like that with the cross in our faith sometimes we lose sight of how important it is and we get flung off how important it is and thrown off on the grass and we have to kind of get back to the centrality of the cross and so this series um, is all about how important the cross is and today's message is called reversal it's called reversal because there's an aspect to the cross that I want us to understand and unpick. And I'd like to open by means of a story. Um, uh, This is the story of a gentleman called William Bray, who was born in 1794 in Cornwall, which is a county here in the UK in the southwest of of the United Kingdom. And when Bray was nine, uh, his dad died. And so uh, he got raised by his granddad, who was a very devout Methodist. Now, Bray's dad, who died, had been a miner before he passed away, and so when Bray left school, he thought that he would become a miner too, and he worked in different mines around Devon and Cornwall. He traveled around and got mining jobs. Now, Bray was a bit of a character. He was a bit of a hothead. He would drink a lot. He would get into fights. He would, he, there was one instance where he caused a riot, apparently. Uh, and so this young sort of teenager into his 20s, he was a bit of a lad, and he would cause a lot of trouble wherever he went. And then three things happened in quite quick sequence to bring about a dramatic reversal of the trajectory of his life. His life got turned around, basically. So first of all, in 1821, when he was 27 years old, he married a woman, a good woman, called Joanna. Now, men, if you're in the house today and you're married to a good woman, put your hand up. Yeah? Some of us men are married to good women, okay? We really are. They are the saving of us in some cases, aren't they? Yeah? (laughs) I can see some hands being forced in the air. Oh, dear. Oh dear. I'll let you guys sort that out later. Wow. The second thing that happened was that uh, in 1823, he narrowly escaped death in a very dangerous mining accident. He was down the mine, there was a, there was a mine collapse, but he just escaped it um, by a hair's breadth, and it really shook him up. And then third, and not long after that, and actually prompted, I think, by the mining accident, he started reading a book called John, it was by a guy called John Bunyan, and it was called Visions of Heaven and Hell. And it was a, it's a Christian book. Now, just so you understand who John Bunyan is, John Bunyan is the one and the same author of a very famous uh, book called The Pilgrim's Progress, which um, I found out, much to my surprise, but, but I guess it makes sense, it's actually the most widely published book in history after the Bible. I didn't know that. So um, Pilgrim's Progress is massive, and he'd, he's written a number of other books. And so um, uh, William Bray is reading Visions of Heaven and Hell. And in November 1823, as Bray was reflecting on his narrow escape, on his good fortune in, in marrying this wonderful woman, um, and on the book he'd been reading, he gave his life to Jesus. Uh, he became a Christian. And um, uh, he came home from his mining one day, and he announced this to his wife. He said, you will never see me drunk again, 
by the help of the, of the Lord. And you know what? She never did. She never did. He got connected in with a Methodist church, and he became quite a well-known preacher, although uh, he was rather unconventional. Um, he would spontaneously burst into song and dance midway through. Now, in the first service, they goaded me into dancing and singing, and I kind of just went, okay, like that. Uh, not very good, is it? Anyway, uh, that's not so much my style, but he had this very uh, interesting and unusual style. He went on to have seven children with Joanna, and they adopted two orphans, and he raised enough funds through the course of his ministry life to build three new Methodist chapels down in the West Country. Now, when people saw him speak and minister, they, they said that he seemed to be charged with this kind of divine electricity. His words and the way he spoke and his looks all had this kind of magnetic power. And crowds of miners would often turn up to hear him preach. And many of them were converted. And there were some remarkable healings in some of his services. Um, he absolutely loved the Bible, uh, William, uh, William Bray did. And he, he, he would say things like, the promises of God are just as good as ready money any day. He'd come out with these great phrases. Now, there's a writer called F.W. Bourne who wrote a biography of uh, Bray, and it's called The King's Son. Now, if you jump into your YouVersion Bible app, and if you go uh, open up your YouVersion Bible app and go to events in the menu, this would apply to all you new ones as well. If you've got the YouVersion Bible app, you can try this. Go to events, and you will find that Birmingham City Church is live, and in there you'll see all the notes for today, and you can add your own comments and, and observations. But in there, I've included the link to this book on Amazon. So if you wanted to buy this book and have a read, The King's Son, it's a story of the life of William Bray. It's an interesting read about an unusual minister. Um, just one little snippet, just to finish about his life. One of his favorite sayings that he used to come out with when people were complaining about his enthusiastic singing and dancing um, was that he, he would say this, if they were to put me in a barrel, I would shout glory out through the bunghole. Praise the Lord. So literally, he, was, you know, he would refer back to his drinking days and say, listen, I'll climb in the barrel and shout glory to God from it, which is a wonderful story of reversal. It's a wonderful story of a turnaround, albeit from a different time and a different age. Um, it talks to the possibility that the kingdom of heaven can bring about a reversal in someone's life. It's a turnaround story of a person coming into contact with Jesus and the cross and experiencing a really dramatic reversal of the trajectory of their life for the better. And that's why I've called my message this morning reversal, because a life which can be headed towards chaos and destruction can be genuinely stopped and turned around fully by the cross of Jesus Christ. It absolutely can, can't it? We could have picked any number of wonderful stories uh, and illustrations of turnaround and reversal uh, to illustrate today's message. I could have gone back through history. We could have asked a number of you in the congregation. There's no shortage from which to choose. Um, uh, we, we, we know people in our networks where there have been turnaround situations or stories where people have had stuff reversed, messes that they've got into and God's got them out of it. And if you think for a moment... Isn't the Bible one long catalog of stories of reversal? If you think about it, um, so many of the stories talk about something going in one direction, God stepping in, and it going then in a much better direction after that, because he's reversed the mess, and he's brought blessing instead. Think of the story of Joseph back in Genesis. You know, his brothers out of envy sell him into slavery, don't they? And then by the end of his life and his story, um, he is number two in the whole of the nation of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. 
Uh, that's a story of a, an incredible reversal uh, in someone's life because of the presence of God uh, and the blessing of God over him. Uh, think about Jonah. I mean, Jonah's like a, almost like, a, like a cl- the classic story of a reversal, literally in direction. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's headed one direction because he wants to run away from God's calling. Uh, and then God sends a storm and a great fish, and he gets swallowed by the fish, and he then gets put back on, on task, doesn't he? It's a reversal of enormous proportions. And he goes and speaks to the city of Nineveh, and he proclaims repentance. And they all are very receptive to, um, to, to what Jonah's got to say. You know, sometimes when God sends us somewhere... We have to remember God's done a whole lot of preparation there already, and we need to stop having so much fear about that. Because if, if we rock up, we can trust that God has done some work already to prepare the way. Um, how about il- illustrations from the New Testament? Uh, parable of the prodigal son. The, uh, you know, the, the youngest son goes off to the far-off country, doesn't he? And he spends everything he has, gets into real difficulties, and then he wakes up one morning and comes to his senses. What do we have? A massive reversal. A, oh my goodness, I've got myself right into this mess. And now I'm going to go and return to my father's house and be uh, just hope that he'll receive me back. That is a story of reversal. Um, Even in the parable of the Good Samaritan that we mentioned there in the in the offering message, a disaster is reversed through compassion, uh, and you know a reversal occurs. That guy was just left for dead on the road to Jericho, wasn't he? Uh, And then the Good Samaritan comes along and reverses that situation through the compassion and the means uh, that we talked about during our offering. What I, what I think is that throughout the Bible, there are pointers and echoes of this theme of reversal because at the heart uh, of the work and the effectiveness of the cross, there is a dramatic change of direction available and possible uh, in life. Um, I want to give you a little bit of an illustration uh, to try and t- kind of teach into a big um, b- biblical doctrine, if you like it, from the Bible. I'm going to use uh, some Christmas lights as an illustration of what I mean. So I brought some Christmas lights uh, with me. Uh, these are from our, our cupboard at home. And uh, uh, like when I was fishing these out this morning, they were right at the back of the cupboard. Isn't that always the way when you need something? Uh, so uh, these are the Christmas lights that we've got. And uh, I want to just illustrate something. So back when I was a boy, um, we had some Christmas lights that are a bit similar to this, um, except for the fact that they were individual bulbs uh, in little holders on a green wire that was connected. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my dad would get these out, and he would put them carefully around the tree, and then he would plug the, uh, the lights into the tree, and very often each year there'd be one or two bulbs that had blown. So he'd get the packet out, and he would, fit the, he would find the bulbs, and he would fit the ones in the places where there was no light. And then, hey, presto, the, bulb, you know, the bulbs would light up. Now, the other lights worked, but there were just missing ones. So he'd get the bulbs, and he'd put them in, and we, we'd fix them. Um, uh, quite often, these bulbs were pretty fragile. I've got to say, I think they were, you know, they were a pretty old set of bulbs. And it, it felt to me like the dog could wag its tail in another room and a bulb would go. You know, it was, it, they're just awful. Um, so every year, my dad would replace at least one or two bulbs from, on, on this string of lights. One particular year, none of the lights came on. And uh, my dad was sitting there thinking, well, you know, is it all the lights? Do I need to replace all the bulbs? That's unlikely. We didn't felt like we had a problem last year. So he traced it back to the plug, because when everything is out on an appliance, you've either got a problem with the power supply, or you've got a problem with this, haven't you? So my dad undoes the plug, and uh, he looks inside, and he finds that the fuse is gone. And not only that, there's like all these brown scorched marks on the, on the inside of the plug. 
So he un basically, he kind of snips it off with a pair of pliers. He gets a new plug. He gets a new fuse. And he rewires it all in. Um, and then, you know, like the family are gathered around, there's the, there's the moment of truth, isn't there? Um, so he plugs it in. And uh, hopefully we have, yeah, great. I'm so pleased this works. You know, as a, as a minister, when you're driving to, work, you know, to church in the morning and you've got a prop, you just want it to work, don't you? You really do. And I didn't need all the bulbs to not, to not work this morning. That would have not been helpful. However, they're working. Praise the Lord. Um, so, so effectively, all the light bulbs come on because the source got fixed. Now, I want to teach, to, teach into something called the doctrine of original sin. Uh, this is like us today. You know, God has designed us to shine our light in the world. And when we receive Jesus, that becomes possible. Uh, it becomes enabled by the presence of Jesus in our lives. What the Bible teaches, though, is that there is something wrong with the starting point. There's something wrong with the source. In other words, what I'm saying is that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they had a connection to the Lord, to the spiritual electricity of God, and then they broke it. They did something to cause the fuse to break. They caused a short out on the inside of the plug. And so that connection was lost. And that connection that was lost was because of their disobedience in not obeying the Lord. And so that connection to the Lord has for them and for us ever since been spoiled. Um, that, that, that supply to us of God's light is no longer just immediately available. And all of us in the room know the struggle with that in our natures, don't we? We know the struggle that we have to, uh, to push against sin. We have to uh, defeat sin. We, we find it, uh, it besets us, and it, it's, it's a really difficult thing to beat. That's called original sin. We have it almost wired into our DNA, if excuse the pun. We've got wires here, but we seem to be wired to do the wrong thing, don't we, sometimes? That stems from an original instance described in the Bible where Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought about a disconnection. And who knows that lights don't work without a supply, do they? Life, spiritually, does not work without a connection to the Lord. Now, what Jesus does is he comes along and he says that there's many attempts to fix this. The history of the Bible could be like a history of how many times could we fix this? How many different ways in which can we make this work? Uh, we'll start again, you know, Noah and the floods. We'll send prophets. We'll send uh, people to speak to you. We'll, you know, we'll send miracles. We'll do what? It, you know, it just doesn't work. And so in the end, God says, right, I'm going to need to send my son. My son is going to be the one who will fix this. And the way that he fixes it is he goes to the cross and he fixes it permanently. Now, the availability is up to us. You know, you've still got individual bulbs here and we've got to decide whether the father is going to, we're going to let the father be, you know, plugging us in like my dad would plug in the, the bulbs around the tree. We have to permit that process. We partner with God in that way to some degree. But what happens is that Jesus has fixed this. There's a reversal that goes on with the cross that deals with the mess that got made by the disconnection of this failing. Are you with me? Yeah, do you understand the analogy so far? And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he actually fixes this and he allows the connection to be restored. And that then means the destiny that we have in God that he had in mind for us from before the beginning of the world to show our light and to shine our light before men, as it says in the word, that then becomes possible again because Jesus fixes the source problem by going to the cross. It's a reversal that is done for us by the cross. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 describes exactly this. It says that we transfer from one kingdom to another. 
Before we get fixed by Jesus going to the cross, we're in the kingdom of darkness. It's described, it says it this way. Uh, for he, that's God the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and so, in, in other words, when Jesus fixes our stuff on the cross, we then have the capacity to have our lives lit up by the presence of the Spirit, by the inworking of Jesus, and our destiny becomes what it was meant to be in the Lord. That's what Jesus does for us. He transfers us from one kingdom into another. Now, Paul was a person in the Bible who had a radical reversal story, if you think about it. He was somebody who was originally called Saul. Uh, he went around murderously uh, gathering up Christians, putting them to death, coming against them. He felt that this new Christianity sect was completely heretical, and he was going to take them out and destroy it. And then one day, he's on his business trying to go and persecute some people in a new town who believed in Jesus, and he has this massive encounter with God, doesn't he? Uh, he falls back on the road, and he hears a voice from heaven, and he becomes a follower of Jesus as a result of a radical encounter, and it's a total reversal in his life. He goes from being totally against Christianity to being, I, I would suggest, arguably, one of the people in history who was the most for it. And he writes second only to Luke. He writes, um, you know, Luke writes the most in, in, in the New Testament, Luke and Acts. But then second to that is Paul. And Paul writes loads and loads of letters. And he's very, very uh, keen to uh, spread the message of the gospel. And he goes on missionary trips and all these kinds of things. Now, Paul writes a letter to a group of Christians in Rome. And he explains this process. He says this, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... So that's Adam effectively disconnecting the spiritual power supply through his disobedience. And death through sin, in this way, death, or lack of, lack of light, if you like, spread to all people because all sinned. So what Adam did has a knock-on effect to all the generations after that. But then Paul jumps down a little bit further in the letter in Romans 5.18, and he says this. So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, in other words, Adam, so also, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. There is a cross-shaped reversal that Jesus brings, which turns this problem of the kingdom of darkness into a possibility in the kingdom of light. And Paul explains it, that it, there's a difference between Adam and Jesus. Adam transgresses, Jesus fixes it. Are you with me so far? I started thinking uh, very carefully about the difference between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Jesus and Gethsemane and the cross. And what I found in my research in, in, into, the, into the scholarly information was some staggering parallels between them. Really quite amazing. And I've got to give credit to some pretty deep theological minds that have gone before me to, to, to plan these out. But in my research, I discovered some truly incredible parallels and differences between what happens in the Garden of Eden with, Ad, with Adam and Eve and then what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane and ford, fording onto the cross. Let's have a look at some of these incredible reversals and transformations that take place when we compare those two stories. Now listen to this carefully, and I'm going to publish this this week. A number of people in the first service said they'd really like to read through these, so I'll send these out as part of our uh, email system in the week. So you'll pick this up. So you know, if you don't pick these all up, don't worry, you'll get them. Um, but let, just just listen to some of these comparisons. So in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, Eve talks to Satan, who weakens her with lies. 
But in Gethsemane, Jesus talks to God who strengthens him with truth. In Eden, uh, in Eden, Adam and Eve are disobedient, losing everything of value. But in Gethsemane, G- uh, sorry, in Eden, Adam and Eve are disobedient, losing everything of value. In Gethsemane, Jesus is obedient, gaining everything of value back. Adam and Eve fall into sin under a tree. Jesus defeats and nails sin to a tree. Adam and Eve hide naked behind a tree, covered in shame. Jesus is naked in public and put on a tree, redeeming us from shame. Adam and Eve are already in paradise, but get kicked out. Jesus is not yet in paradise on the cross, but from there, he invites us all back in. Adam and Eve are placed outside Eden's gates because of the curse that God lays upon them. But Jesus is placed outside Jerusalem gates to receive that same curse because God transfers it onto him on the cross. Thorns appear in the ground as a curse upon creation. But then thorns appear on Jesus' head, returning a blessing to creation. By the sweat of Adam's brow outside Eden, his curse is the work of the ground to make physical bread. But by the sweat of Jesus' brow inside Gethsemane, his blessing is the work of the cross to become our spiritual bread. God opens up Adam's rib to create a bride for himself called Eve. Soldiers open up Jesus' side to create a bride for himself called church. In Eden, a man makes a decision leading to a hopeless end. But in Gethsemane, a man makes a decision leading to endless hope. Amen? Gethsemane and the cross reverse Eden and the fall. And so just like repairing the plug on on the Christmas lights, Jesus undoes what was messed up in the beginning and creates the possibility of it being right again if we're prepared to follow him and follow his leading and respond to that invitation because it's all working, it's all there, all the work is done. All you have to do is to be plugged in by the Father and it will work. So how do we apply some of these things? These are big truths today. There's a reversal going on through the cross. How would we respond to that? Well, my granddad uh, sometimes used to say to me, you can't rewind time, which is kind of slightly annoying because it's very obvious, but it's also true, but it's also wise. You know, it's not one of those granddad things to say, isn't it? Um, But I used to say that, I used to think to myself when he used to say that, I'd be like, wow, yeah, I actually wouldn't mind rewinding time in some cases because you could go back and take a whole different course of action and then not have that load of regret that you had to pick up. That would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Sometimes it's helpful to see a reversal in action. Sometimes it's helpful to see how something could be put back to how it was before it got messed up. So I had a little trawl around on YouTube and I found this quite fun video that shows some ordinary activities being filmed in in reverse so you get a chance to see how things were before they got messed up or meddled with. Uh, Let's see if we can uh, show show that, that would be great. Thanks guys.
Wouldn't it be nice if our spirituality was that easy? Got ourselves into a mess. We could just back it out. And it will be back to how it was before. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Now, there's a massive difference between showing a a fun video on YouTube that someone's shot and then reversed, uh, and what Jesus manages to reverse by going to the cross. They're in totally different leagues, but that whole idea of Jesus being able to reverse out our spiritual mess on the cross got me thinking, how might we apply the work of the cross into some situations where we need to do some backing out and we need to do some reversing and we need his help to make that happen well. You know, if the cross of Jesus really does reverse what Adam and Eve caused, then there's a call upon us to help him do that or to be responsive to him asking us to help him do that, isn't there? What would cross-shaped reversal look like, practically speaking? That's a big question. So here are some things I think that are directly inspired by the reversal that Jesus achieved on the cross for us that then could lead into our lives. Now each of these has a God dimension and it has a people dimension. And the shape of the cross is designed to work like that. So our God dimension is what goes up and down between, we're here and God's up there. And so there's a vertical line between us and God, isn't there? That's the upright of the cross, of the cross uh, that was planted in the earth at Golgotha, Golgotha wasn't it? That, that's, that's that line. And the, then the cross beam is representing the relationships to left and right, the outstretched arms of Jesus to the people either side of him. And so if you're going to draw a line, to do a line diagram to represent the cross, the, the straight up is the relationship with God, and the straight across is the relationship with the people either side of us. Here's three things I'm going to suggest, and they're all big challenges. So I'm going to really tread on your toes today. <laughs> these are really, really big things. Each one of these things is big on its own. So the first thing I think that really makes a a, a great start in the territory of reversal is apology. Being able to make an apology, apologizing is, is key. We need to be able to give God a full and proper apology for the things that we have done wrong. I really do think we need to get on our knees a little bit more, more often, and say a big and proper sorry to God. When is genuinely, when is the last time you actually got on your knees, buried your face in your sofa cushions and said, I am really, really sorry that I did that, God. Come on, when was it? Was it a few months ago? I think we might have drifted a little bit towards God Almighty and fallen off God Almighty. Can I just say that? An apology is far and away the best start down the reversal path where God is concerned, isn't it? Let's get on our knees in response to the cross, the reversal of the cross, and tell the Lord that we're sorry for some things that have violated that. You know, when David sinned against Bathsheba and her husband and the prophet Nathan came to confront him about it, he admitted it, he fasted for seven days, and then he wrote Psalm, seven, uh, Psalm 51, which has to be one of the most sincere and humble apologies you're ever going to find. And then from that place, we also need to give the people to our left and right a full and proper apology for the things that we have done wrong to them. Not one of these conditional apologies that kind of, kind of puts parameters around it, like legalese, like, I'm sorry if you feel that way. No, just say sorry. I'm really sorry, full stop. 
Can I suggest that a proper sorry has fallen right out of fashion in our self-entitled world? I think it has. When was the last time you got a genuine, decent, proper, wholehearted, full-on sorry from somebody? When was it? That means that it's not floating around our culture that much, doesn't it? We know it when we've hurt somebody. Go to them and say that you're sorry. And what we're doing by listening to, to God and saying sorry to him, and then saying sorry to the people around us when we've done the wrong thing to God and to them, we are practicing cross-shaped reversal right there and then. And we are helping Jesus or being obedient to Jesus in extending the kingdom of God. Because a sorry goes a really long way to reversing us out of a mess, doesn't it? It really does. Secondly, and each of these has a God bit and a human bit, forgiveness. Forgiveness would be to receive fully the forgiveness that Jesus offers us from the cross. You know, some of us are so consumed by the awfulness of what we've done that we get blinded to the fact that Jesus went through the cross to achieve it for us, to achieve our forgiveness. You know, it's the, syn- it's the syndrome of if only you knew how bad I've been. Well, can I just gently put it to you that it's time to get over yourself? <laughs> I'm sure it was really bad, the thing that you did. But I've just got to say, you know, Paul, who wrote the second largest amount in the New Testament, was a religious murderer. He supervised killings and stonings. So if you're a murderer, a rapist, a sex offender, a liar, a cheat, a thief, someone who stirs up riots, an inciter and an organizer of genocide, somebody who's beaten his wife in a drunken rage like, unfortunately, William Bray did before he became a Christian, a troublemaker, a slanderer, you get exchanged for Jesus on Easter, on Easter weekend like Barabbas got exchanged, and you are now fully and 100% free. You are totally forgiven. Get that into your heads and in your hearts. You are forgiven. All of it is gone. Really, all of it is gone. Someone really, really needs to hear that today because you're carrying the things or the things that you did around in your mind and you're going, but God, I think those are too awful for you to forgive. And Jesus is saying, no, they are not too awful for me to give. Receive fully the reversing forgiveness of Jesus Christ into your life. Do not reject it because you think you're too bad for it to be applied to you. You know, there's a big reason why the cross was permitted by the Father to be so extreme. And that that is that there is nothing you have done that could be worse or more scandalous than the cross. There really really isn't. The cross always matches and undercuts the badness of the thing that you've done because it was so awful. One of our messages in the cross series was called Scandal, wasn't it? I think it was in week two. It was designed to be totally and utterly humiliating and degrading the cross. For Jesus to go through that, he has gone to the very, very bottom of the barrel. Therefore, your sins, he can, he can respond to that from the cross and forgive them because he's gone lower than that. Your dreadful thing that you did, no, 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 Jesus has gone lower than that. Not that he did anything wrong himself, but he's gone to the very bottom of the pit. And also, I need to remind us all gently that Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit have already watched you in all your badness through your whole life, haven't they, already? They've already spotted it all. It's not like you're confessing to something that's a surprise to them. It's not like you've managed to hide it like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, is it? You cannot hide from God. He sees it all. And he's just waiting for us to receive forgiveness from his son on the cross. 
our personal up and down reversal from Jesus' forgiveness on the cross also has a left and right dimension as well. We need to extend that forgiveness that we have received to other people. The best way I can describe forgiving others is letting them go back to God in your mind and heart and asking, them, asking him, sorry, God, to handle them in his mercy and grace. It says it in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, sometimes when we get hurt by people, it's just awful. It sits in our minds and hearts for a long time. The pain of it is just too big somehow. It won't go away. And it takes an act of the will to say, that, that pain, that feeling, that episode, I am literally going to give that, that to you, God, and I'm going to give the person who did that to you as well. And if you do that somehow in your mind, God does take it off you. Now, you have to have to repeat it a few times, but God can do that. He will take it off you. And then suddenly, one day, that nastiness that's been living rent-free in your spirit will, will dissipate. It will go. I've had to practice this in some very extreme circumstances myself. I know what it's like to forgive people. Do not carry the transgressions of others around in your mind and heart a moment longer than you have to because just as Jesus has forgiven us from the cross, we can forgive others too. And that then leaves you in the clear. You live unburdened again, which is what Jesus came to do for us. The third thing, and I'm going to ask the worship team just to return now. So number one is uh, apologize. Apologize to God and apologize to your neighbors and your friends. Number two, forgiveness. Receive the forgiveness of Jesus for you from the cross. And do not try and bargain with Jesus and say, well, I did such a bad thing, you can't forgive me. No, that's complete nonsense. Jesus can, can forgive everything, and he does. And let's extend some forgiveness to our friends. Let's let them off that hook as well. And then the last thing is some change. If Jesus came and reversed some things by what he did on the cross in this great story of reversal that I'm presenting you to you today and you are his follower, what is something that you feel he is challenging you to change right now? You know, in my experience, as I look back over the things where God has prompted me to make a change, it has very rarely been that I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I knew what it was. I always know what it is from God when he's asking me to make a change. It's my stubbornness and my willingness that is the issue. It's never the content, it's the motivation. And I suspect if that's true for me, it will be true for all of us today as well. We very often know what the next thing to fix from God is, and it's about getting round to it and doing it. I'm having this little thing at the moment where God is challenging me to be a little bit less grumpy as a driver. I'll just confess that. Do not be so grumpy as a driver, muttering things about other traffic as you're going to work and what. You know, stop. Just be more gracious. <laughs> the Lord is really convicting me of that at the moment. I know I need to do that. What is one thing God is asking you to change right now? And let's take this. That's the up and down of the cross. Let's take this sideways. <laughs> If you want to really take this to the next level, God has given us people who are close to us, to our left and to our right, in our lives, who can tell us lovingly and kindly what we need to change. They really can. Um, Rob Parsons, 
from the charity Care for the Family says on one of his marriage videos how he asked his wife this question one time. And uh, he heard back that when he doesn't take the bins out, she feels devalued. But he wasn't expecting something that specific and so quick. Can I just say, you know, like, if we're going to have those conversations, just limit it to one thing. You don't need to hear a list of eight things, do you? That's going to be too hard for your spirit. <laughs> just ask for one thing. And, and be wise about asking the right people. Don't ask anybody. Ask the people who love you and have got your backs and have spoken truth to you in love in the past. Because if you open this up to the wrong people, then that's a recipe for a bit of devastation, isn't it? What is the thing that God is asking you to change? And what is the thing that you're brave enough to ask your closest friends to get you to change? Apologize to God and to people. Receive forgiveness from Jesus on the cross and extend that forgiveness to others. What is God telling you to change? And if you're brave enough, what is your closest friend or your spouse or your brother or sister telling you to change? Maybe there'll be some a clue in there for you to work on. We're going to worship right now, so would you please stand with me? And uh, Kevin and the team are going to lead us in a, in a worship song. And then I'm going to come back and suggest some responses to our message today. Thank you, Kevin.